0: Hello and welcome to the Soundstage Audiophile podcast. In this second season of the show, host Jordan Guth is joined by a new guest each episode who knows something about hi-fi that Jordan doesn't. And who knows, while he's learning about all of this, you might learn something too. So with no further ado, here's Jordan and this week's guest.
1: Hello again, and welcome to another episode of the Soundstage Audiophile podcast. Today, we have Dr. Mark Waldrop, uh, who has decades of experience as an audio engineer, a producer and champion of high quality audio reproduction. Um, Today, we're hoping to learn more about the audiophile music market and how that's changed over the last few decades. So without further ado, uh, welcome, Dr. Mark Waldrop. Would you like me to call you doctor? Would you like me to call you Mark?
0: Mark Mark is is certainly even my students call me Mark. Oh, there we go. At least least in my presence. I don't know what they call me when they're when they're (laughs) something else. Well, you've definitely earned the doctor
1: logo with the amount of academia behind uh, audio research specifically uh, kind of going over your credentials. It's kind of astounding how much knowledge and how much experience you have in the field.
0: Well, I've been fortunate. I really, you know, I, I tell my, my class and, and anybody who will listen that, that I feel over the breadth of, of span of my career and my life, um, it was the perfect time to to learn and and understand both the analog uh, production technologies and techniques as a recording engineer for well, coming near 50 years now. Um, and then having a transition from what was 24-track analog tape machines and, and analog signal processors and uh, analog reverb chambers and, and spring reverbs and so forth, because we didn't have digital at all um, uh, back when, to seeing it now uh, change both the production technologies behind making records and the aesthetics go along with that. Um, and the distribution of that music, which has been traditionally you know, based on physical media, uh, completely shift gears um, in the last 10, 15, 20 years to the point where it's, it's actually, you know, uh, um, a non-starter for me to, to, to participate in sitting at a table at a trade show and think that I'm going to break even selling physical discs anymore. Um, it's just not the same that it as it, as it was once was not that it's any less uh, the economics have shifted um, and the, the, uh, the way things are being distributed now uh the whole spatial audio thing is a piece of it. high resolution music is a piece of it um you know uh, but i have really come down to and based on the the youtube channel that i just recently started probably within the last month or so i consolidated a variety of youtube channels that were dedicated to classical or country or jazz or one of the other formats genres and i i put it all up under aix records and yeah. Found out that you need a thousand subscribers, so I kicked in a blog again, reached out to my community, and and within 24 hours we were over a thousand subscribers, and so now I'm I'm uh, official YouTube channel partner. Not that that means oh, into riches or anything like that, but um, it's a place that 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 I am placing uh, my entire catalog. I sit here pretty much every day, and 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 in the background, Rita Coolidge is being uploaded to my channel as we speak. Um to make available the unique catalog that I have. Not only is it unique because it's high resolution native high resolution audio recordings, but there's video with all yeah. the that I did as well. Uh, not live concert video, but concert or a private concert kind of thing, no audience present. So it seemed like YouTube was the perfect place to put that. Um, I had a Dave Mason track that I did for an EHX uh, convention or conference 2007. It's got almost 200,000, you know, views. People really like wild. to sit there and and stream a piece of, of, of audio. Uh, and if it's got a piece of, of video with it, all the better. So that's kind of where I'm at uh, these days.
1: So there, there's a lot of like kind of paths that I could go down in conversation. Uh, the one that's kind of jumping off right off the, the bat is this um, dematerialization of audio. So I, if I'm not mistaken, like records or LPs were kind of from the 40s. And then we moved into to cassette tapes in the 60s. And then it was like CDs in the 80s, Uh and, and kind of past that. Now we started getting into the, the late 90s and the 2000s where there was the MP3. Computers made a big push in the home and then they're streaming and um, it seems like the, the progression of YouTube really is taking that streaming idea, but then adding another layer on top of that, adding the, the video component um, to kind of enrich that experience
0: further. Yeah, no, I think uh, other than you've got your decades a little bit shifted here and there, we, we dealt with lacquer, uh, mono lacquer, although Bloomline had invented stereo back in the 30, 19, early 1930s. Um, we were really, until we hit the microgroove LP in the 50s, 50s. We didn't have, okay. We, we didn't have stereo. So vinyl took over uh, lacquer, uh, 78s, and then 33 and a third, the microgroove r- records of the 50s. Um, in the 60s, it was it was vinyl LPs pretty much. Look, I was a kid in the in the 60s, and I had analog tape, but I was unusual. We did not have cassettes until probably the 70s, something like that. Okay. okay. We, we, we started being able to, to walk around with it. Uh, the CD didn't come around until 1982. So we were we were in vinyl and and reel to reel and cassette tape up until the early '80s, and it didn't take off. The first year of CD sales was less than ten thousand players. Um, it was a it was a remarkable technology, but people were, were content with their their setups, and and it wasn't until people really started paying attention to the the fact you could get the entire Nine Symphony and didn't have to turn records over all the time. And you got this fidelity quality and random access and all these other positives, not to mention the fact that the audio quality is, is potentially very, very good. Especially now that we've developed the A to D and D to A process to produce and deliver, and distribute music of that, uh, of that specification, which is largely called standard resolution audio CD quality of 44.1%. 16 bits is the standard by which we then either get high resolution above that or we get lo-fi below that in the mp3 lossy compression world um when the ipod came out um and in the first part of the 20s the 2000s rather um then we start dealing with file players there were file players before that. the rio was a was a file player but it was really the disruption of apple and steve jobs and the uh digital files with illegal versions through Napster and mp3.com and then making legal through through the iTunes store, um, that, that things started to, to, to shift. Um, but at that point, we're dealing with limited bandwidth. We're, we're dealing with compressed files that, that, are, that are lossy, that don't have the full uh, high frequency, don't have the full dynamic range, are, are compromised to make room for the small pipe that we were pushing stuff through at the time. Now that bandwidth opens up and continues to open up, I mean the, the the people over at my building now are doing a gigabit up and down um, yeah. into into the into the studio, which was insane. It's it's expensive, especially on the commercial side of things, business side of things compared to home. But we have the bandwidth now to stream high quality audio and four K video into our houses and watch any television program at any time or watch and listen to any audio program at any time. Any so it was it was it was an attempt in 2000 with DVD audio and SAC to sort of replace the CD with things that bragged about higher resolution, better fidelity, or the potential for better fidelity, and uh, and surround sound. Uh, the ability yep. to have 5.1 surround sound at that point. Um, and neither one of those formats, I was a, an adherent to the DVD audio specification because one bit DSD encoding for SACD is a non-starter for me. I just, I can't tolerate the 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 philosophical bent that we we're going to digitize with one bit and, and limit your dynamic range and or your frequency range and so forth, but marketing and 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 uh, and money have a lot to say. So there are certainly a, a lot of SACD fans out there. Um, and if something came out on SACD, it was in surround. So be it. That's the way it was. But um, I created a catalog of of in two thousand of native high resolution audio recordings rather than going back into the catalogs as the major labels did dredging out a 16 or a 24 track analog tape and hiring elliot shiner or one of the big shot grammy winning engineers to remix this stuff in surround um that's old fi that's lo-fi, yeah. that's analog tape yes analog tape can sound great but every every time you take a, a tape and start from uh, a 24 track um Ken Calais is a good friend. He did the Rumors record. 17 hours, they were running the same tapes across heads and, and wore them out. All the oxide wore away, And they had to transfer the, the new recordings, the new overdubs against a safety copy of the drums because the drum sound is so dull. So we had this, this these shortcomings that come with the analog formats that you don't have with, with digital. Um, so I decided I would record a catalog of high-resolution recordings, native high-resolution recordings, which means my equipment at the time, which was obscenely expensive, and stayed in the digital domain. was all 96K, 24-bit PCM. Um, And I went and I created a catalog of roughly 100 records with Ernest Franklin, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, Rita Coolidge, Paul Williams, Willie Nelson, just whoever would would make themselves available and who could perform their music live. Uh, The traditional way Mm. that records have been done, that I certainly learned, um, was punching in and overdubbing. Adding a whole lot of parts to a basic track until you then finally get to the mixing stage. Because these records were, were projects that had already been recorded, essentially, um, everybody knew what to play. So yeah. we go in and John Gorka comes and plays his tunes with a mandolin player and a bass player and a, and a couple of background singers, and piano. And, and we capture that as a live performance. There's so it's one take, essentially. It's one, it's one take. Look, we would take them a couple of times, but it's basically a, a one pass true. You'd play from beginning to end uh, and somebody would say thumbs up. We didn't even stop and went in and go in and listen. If everybody, <laughs> if everybody was good with that take, then, then we moved on because we made a whole album in three or four hours. All oh, wow. these albums were made. we in, in a single session down at the Colburn School where we did most of these recordings with an acoustic, you know, uh, reverb time of 1.8 seconds, uh, real reverb and, and a beautiful nine foot Steinway piano um, and, and a background that we could light and shoot with video um we would make three records in a day um i booked the place oh. a couple of days and we'd make four or five records during those couple of sessions um sometimes they went a little bit longer than than others but you know emil richards the percussionist who's the late emil richards um and his big band we came in mean, we were done in an hour and a half i mean that's it, crazy he, he knew exactly what they do it, was, it took more time to set it up so i captured all these projects with production values that that uh that I adopted that were dedicated to the audiophile sensibility, which meant in my mind that yes, I did adopt 96K 24-bit PCM as the recording methodology. I used benchmark preamps. I used the best microphones. I used a straight signal path. I didn't use any limiters, no compressors, uh, dynamic processors at all. If it played loud, they played loud. it played soft, they played soft. They had dynamic range. That's the big thing that misses in most music as a former mastering engineer. I used no equalization. If a guitar was thin and, and trebly, it was thin and trebly for a reason. And that's how I captured it. They wanted a full-bodied, big, you know, sound. They'd get a jumbo uh, Gibson or something like that and play. Um, and and I used real reverb. The, the reverb that's on these tracks was that which was produced in the space, which was a chamber music auditorium. So I, I, I accepted a whole bunch of parameters that, that, that I felt, as a musician myself, would lend itself to more realistic, better sounding recordings. And I labeled those high resolution because of the 96K 24-bit stuff. Uh, and people really liked what they heard. I, mean, I I mixed those records on my DVD disc. I never made CDs, but I put them on DVD discs and um, and made them available both in stereo and in surround. I'm a big fan of surround. I think it's far more impactful to move from stereo to surround than it is to move from 441 to, to 96k, for example. Yeah. Um, and so I, I put two surround mixes on there. One that was very aggressive, puts you right in the middle of the band uh, with drums on the right side and piano on the left side and so on. Uh, I call that a stage mix. Or you can also listen from the uh, audience perspective in which ambience in, in, in the hall is basically placed in the left and right surround speakers. So it was kind of you know uh, have it your way. I mean, you you take your pick as to how you want you want to listen to things, and and that kind of future proofs things, and and lets people you know slowly I think migrate away from stereo uh, into immersive surround, which is now all the rage with the spatial audio that Apple and Dolby and some of these other people are doing.
1: That's that's super cool. Now we, when we're talking about. Uh, audio
0: dvds is it audio dvds or is it's it a- dvd video was what we started with in 1997 okay and i actually my company actually produced the very first ones for release in the united states on march 19th of 1997 very uh, cool. before there were any dvds around and no players available yeah. uh, but dvd video uses compressed uh, multi-channel audio dolby okay. or optionally dts or you can have stereo PCM, even high resolution stereo PCM. But because that takes such a big footprint, they didn't use that against the movies because the no. movie was the, the primary. The, yeah, uh, the big piece. So, but there were people that used DVD video format, got rid of the picture, just put a slide up there. Um, high Res Records, a partner of mine and I did that. Uh, uh, Hobson did it with DVD audio disc, he called it DAD, where they would transfer old analog tapes into the digital format at 96 or even 192 and sell those on disc without the video component. But that's <laughs> limited to stereo. Got it, wasn't, it. it wasn't then until they said, well, that really worked out well. We've, we've, we've really made D, uh, VHS obsolete with this DVD format It worked really well. Um, the players are out there. Let's go again and, and see if we can't upgrade from CD quality to the next standard, which was DVD audio. And DVD yeah. audio says, OK, great. We can we, you can have video in a video sector of that disc if you want. But the primary thing is to put audio. So they put out feelers for or a, a request for proposal uh, in the late 90s to a variety of tech companies and Said, we've got 13. It basically thirteen megabits per second of bandwidth. that's ninety six k twenty four bits, six channels. Yeah. we don't, we, don't want, we want to get all that back through the mechanism of of uh, of putting it on this spinning disk. and since that bandwidth multiplies out to thirteen point nine four megabits per second and a DVD disk only goes up to ten, we had to have some compression technology to, in order to get it to fit in the container and have the bandwidth available to deliver it seamlessly. So, this RFP went out to Panasonic, went out to a bunch of people. One of the people it went out to was Meridian in, in the UK of MQA fame. Um, and they have some very smart people there. And they they said, okay, great. We're going we're to uh, offer our technology up. And that's where Meridian Lossless Packing, MLP, came in. that made this 13 losslessly compressible down to below the, the DVD audio threshold. So it could fit on the disc. So it could be played back on the disc, exactly. Hmm. And so MLP became the standard for DVD audio, which meant all those hundreds of thousands of DVD video players that were out there already, which did not have the MLP playback decoding chip in it, had to be replaced for the uh, DVD audio standard. So could that, like
1: I'm, I'm thinking of the time, uh, I remember getting my first DVD player fit as a family, like mid-2000s kind of thing. Uh, but I, I didn't really know about audio DVDs. Was it this MLP piece of it that really caused the downfall of DVD audio or never the the uptick, I should say? It never really gained that popularity?
0: It was a couple of things. Um, If you you think back on it, the people at Philips and Sony and Thompson and a couple of other companies back in the uh, late 70s and early 80s were the ones that came up with the IP, the intellectual property behind the CD audio disc, which made them billions of dollars in royalties. One format, it took over. Everybody had to have it. You make hardware, you deliver software, and you got a royalty piece on all those things. So along comes uh, the DVD video, which is a different set of companies. Warner Brothers and Toshiba and others were involved in that standard. Uh, When they start then turning their focus towards DVD audio or the music business, Sony and Philips said, wait a minute, wait a minute, we've we've been getting our, our more than our lion's share of, of the revenue off of this thing. We don't want to share with DVD audio. That's a technology under the DVD form, the Toshiba and Warner Brothers of PCM and the rest of it. So we'll come up with our own standard. That's when they they hatched SACD one bit. Ah, okay. And so we had competition. We had a format war much akin to the beta VHS uh, uh, HD, DVD, VHS. Blu-ray, that kind V-ray. of... It, yeah. yeah, history repeats itself. Yeah, they did. And then Sony was not going to lose uh, on, on this because they had lost it at the beta war and they lost it at SACD. So, you know, the Blu-ray finally became their thing. Um, but but at the time, um, SACD and DVD audio were launched around the same time. I remember seeing in 1999 at a show in Chicago, a, uh, an SACD player under glass wasn't playing anything. Um, it was twenty thousand dollars, or five thousand. I think it was five thousand um, dollars, and there was no software for it. But they they wanted to get to market to to take that that royalty stream again. So yeah. we had this DVD audio war. Even the oh, even though the honest truth is DSD technology as a deliverable is highly flawed, and there will be people out there that that write nasty grams back to you guys saying no, oh, that's not true at all. Well, it is true, um, and and so you know. PCM audio, high resolution PCM audio is far more capable. It's from a production point of view, you can do stuff with it and you can't do anything with the SD because it's one bit. How do you adjust dynamics on a one bit word? Well, you put yeah. it in a three bit word and then it becomes multi bit. Anyway, there's a whole bunch of shenanigans that went along the way, but DVD audio and my discs failed. Um, Except, especially, you know, uh, amongst the public, but audiophiles that had and gone out to get an Oppo or get a multi-channel, multi-format universal player that would play all disc formats, CDs, DVDs, even now the new ones play Blu-rays. So -hmm. those physical players from Oppo and others that would play every disc and had the chips in there necessary for DTS and Dolby and would play the PCM, of course, and MLP, that became the standard for the audiophile market. And i'd stand at tables and say have you got an apple player and you know eight out of ten times people say sure i do and that'll play everything that, that that certainly i made and that sony and and phillips and the uh people that were adherents to dsd made as well so you had the best of both um but it wasn't very long thereafter that um because of the, the war and the failure of those two formats really um that that streaming started to to come into play and and file-based delivery, and so we moved. Uh, certainly, David Chesky and and his brother Norm, and I, and others, uh, Chad Kasem, and so forth, we all started looking at, at downloads as the as the solution. So yeah. if you're not if you're not going to buy a disc from me, I will sell you the file as a downloaded file that you can play on your music server. I mean, an iPod is a music server; it's just a very low one, portable, portable, personal, you know? yeah. It's a, it's a, but there were very expensive flight escape and, 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 others made big, you know, uh, systems that were many tens of thousands of dollars, music servers for the audio file, because you couldn't stream audio file quality. They would instead allow you to download the files. And so I set up in 2007, the first, I believe high resolution download site called itrax.com itrax.com, which still exists and all of the files and all the mixes not the videos, but the audio files are downloadable as my master. They're PCM you know files and ninety-six K 24 bit and you get to choose whether you want a wave or a FLAC or or a uh, uh, surround mix or stereo mix. And so you can pull those down and play them, you know, on on your system, your music server. You can play them on a smartphone for crying out loud. They're, they're yeah. but they take up a lot of space, a lot more space. So you have this 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 dilemma of more tunes. Um, and less quality, less fidelity, or fewer tunes and no compromise fidelity. And can you tell 100%. the difference? So, I mean, the trade-off generally has been that we'll take lesser quality um, and have my entire catalog, you know, sitting on a 32 gig hard drive.
1: Well, it, it's interesting because I think of the the masses and like even me getting my first iPod and, and kind of being introduced to all this stuff. Um, at the time, I was trying to fill up my one gig iPod. I was like, "How can I like? Where can I get all this music? Okay, like download from iTunes. Like, how quickly can I fill this thing up? Um, quality at the time was never a consideration for me. Could have been partly the music I was listening to, because you don't think of uh, like punk rock or, or heavy metal or whatever as uh, as needing to have that high fidelity recording, or, or not as much. Like some of that grunge and the the clipping and stuff is, is almost part of the sound to a degree." True. But uh, as as I've gotten older, the quality of the recording has become more and more important for me. So it's interesting to think that the masses really kind of start with this lower quality and they accept that. The, eventually, they get sold on higher quality and there has to be something that kind of entices them to move that way. Where it seems like for the audiophiles, the, the recording standards and the, the kind of quality levels that were established in the, the mid-2000s are pretty much the same today? Like the 96, 24-bit? It, I know there's more, but is there a, a difference or is that diminishing returns? Like
0: are you actually getting anything else out of that? Well, it's interesting you touch on that because that was the epiphany that, that uh, look, I was the biggest advocate, one of the biggest advocates, certainly at the two 2000- thousand. And DVD audio came around and I started building this catalog of, of high-resolution recordings, native high-res recordings, as opposed to uh, taking an old analog tape and putting it in a larger container and calling it high-res. That was the issue of provenance and why I got myself kicked off the high-end audio board at the CEA because they were making stuff up uh, in order to sell more recordings and more equipment. Um, so it, 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 it dawned on me after... Investing millions of dollars and thousands of hours of my time and my team's time and so forth that, hmm, these are really great sounding recordings. And what is it that makes them really great sounding recordings? Is it because I gather the entire ensemble onto a stage with a new real reverb and don't compress and don't EQ and use a great piano? Uh, and record everybody at the same time? Or is it because it's recorded at a sampling rate of 96 K and 24 bit words? Is it because I don't master the records and, and do anything dynamically at the last stage? I, I spent 13 years mastering records for, for people from bad company and the almond brothers and kiss and the rest of them. And, and, you know, every single time the story I tell with Paul Rogers, the, the lead singer of bad company and very famous, uh, rock and roll voice. Um, he was in the studio he was in the mastering studio with me um and we made a record merchants of cool a dvd with him and and his band and and his producer came down from from i think they were in vancouver or something and we sat there for the day uh mastering this record and it sounded great it sounded really great and so we thought and so he he signed off the producer signed off we sent it back to the record company and they said nope not loud enough not loud enough the loudness wars not loud enough so we did it again i did it again and i compressed more and i turned up the volume and adopted things like normalization which keeps it just just legal in the 16 bits or whatever it was on the on the disc we were dealing with i did that five times they came back and said it's not loud enough until there was no music left yeah. uh, and 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 so i gave up that's when i stopped mastering so this is this is not conducive to the to the music, it certainly works for for making the loudest records that come through the radio. And maybe that sells more and, and why people are, you know, engaged by that uh over compression ultra maximizer and the other tools that we've learned how to use. And people, you know, Andrew Sheps bragged about making a Metallica record that's 18 dB over the standard. Um you know it's it's certainly part of that loudness wars things. But I went back and I and I began to to doubt the advocacy that I had so strongly uh, expressed during CEA meetings and on my blog and and, and, in addresses that I would give at the various conferences and so forth. I said, okay, let's put it to the test. I I am a professor, so occasionally you you can get a a break from your teaching load and a sabbatical, which is a wonderful thing. Uh, If you've got a research project, I was encouraged to, to apply for a sabbatical, and I did, and I got one. This was back in 2017, I think. I said, look, the research that's been done, Meyer Moran and others, um, weren't using high-resolution sources. So how can you determine whether somebody can hear a high-resolution recording and distinguish between that and a standard resolution recording, a CD-quality recording, if they don't use those to start with? Instead of using, you know... uh, Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road, or another track that was sold commercially by Sony or by whatever record company that was derived from an analog tape, which wasn't high resolution in in the in the beginning. The Providence was standard resolution because it's analog tape, which is less fidelity than a CD. And if we put it in a 96k 24 bit DVD audio bucket, does it magically get better fidelity? It doesn't. Yeah. Well, I, and I faulted them for for that. Uh, and other studies that were that were concluding that nobody could tell the difference. Well, because you hadn't played anything that had any difference. So instead, uh, knowing that I have a catalog of a thousand tracks from classical and pop and guitar, acoustic, folk, etc., country music even, um, I said, well, I'll, I'll in my sabbatical, I will make available 20 tracks, a variety of, of tracks, sort of across the genres and vocal and instrumental and all sorts of other things. And... I will convert them, uh, the native 9624 high-res files, down to CD quality, 44.1, 16 bits, um, stereo. And the high-res ones were the stereo ones, too. I didn't mess with the surround stuff. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I made sure that they were exactly the same length. Um, everything was, except that last octave, was, was gone. Everything from 22K or roughly 20K on up was missing from the CD. And was still there in the in the high resolution version, and I randomly you know named them A or B, um, and and made them available through my blog to my readers, and so they were invited to please download them, play them anytime you want, anywhere you want, headphones. Just don't cheat, don't look at them. You can. Yeah. There are tools that are very easily you know you pull them into Adobe and you see the spectrum, you see it chopped off at at 20k, and they were they were. You know, look, I understand that's a flaw. If people are going to be dishonest in, in, in something like taking a survey on high-resolution audio, then, then we're really sunk. But whatever. Uh, I got, I got 8,000 data points back. Now, Meyer and oh, wow. Moran had 60 people. Uh, there's other studies that have done 20-somethings and, mm-hmm. and so forth. There were 8,000 uh, data points that I got back from these 40, uh, from the, the thousands of people that, that downloaded the files and, and I don't know, seven or 800 of them responded with the form, said four questions. A is the high resolution, B is the high resolution. I can't tell, or I'm not gonna participate in this because it's not the genre that I know or some yeah. other thing. And I had a statistician who was one of my readers go through this with Bob. Um, went through it, and we we established pretty definitively that the null proposition of can you tell was confirmed. Nobody could tell. Hmm. There were a few people who did better than others, but in general, it was just no better than tossing a coin. Um, no way. Which which meant okay, great. Uh, so my life has been pointless, and I wasted. <laughs> <I wastes> <laughs> You've and learned and a lot along the way. I learned a lot along the way, and and but you know, here I am, uh, all these years later now, I put that out. It was, it was a, an AES paper. People, you know, people with vested interests were, oh, it was highly flawed because it wasn't done in the studio and you gave people the chance. They probably cheated. And, and so all those people that are pushing for the marketing of high resolution audio, um, felt, you know, obliged to, to really trash my, my paper. Um, but this is real world. These are people, my peers, the audiophiles of the world, can't tell the difference. Maybe the scientific community cares about something else. But now I, you know, if you go to my AIX Records YouTube channel, I am prominently displaying the high-res audio logo on the sort of still card that, that precedes each one of the, uh, the albums that I'm putting up. Yeah. And people will quibble and say, well, wait a minute. YouTube doesn't deliver high-resolution audio. Um, they compress and they push it out. But if they're recorded in high-resolution I captured these natively in high-resolution audio. So what makes a difference? If, in fact, we can't tell the difference between a CD quality and a, and a high native high-resolution recording, then there's no reason to give you the extra bandwidth other than to feel-good. Two, um, YouTube can deliver virtually CD quality. Yeah. But the fidelity... Is baked into the production, not in the delivery container. If 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 I have the dynamic range uh, intact from the time that I made Rita Coolidge singing higher and higher, and I don't master that record and I don't compress the you know the dynamics on the drums or limiter or do some other games with EQ, and I deliver the sound that 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 was present in that room at the time, that's. What I'm capable of delivering through the YouTube channel, and I think they do sound better. They do sound more uh, rich and, and have greater fidelity because they're not mastered, because they were produced with high fidelity in mind from the production point, and are, are then obviously limited by whatever the distribution channel is. But if you if you adopt the the standards that are that are requested by the record companies, like the the people that, that release the the uh, the Bad Company DVD all those years ago, they've already decided, and so has Warner Brothers and Sony and Universal and the rest of them, that the louder records sell more. Therefore, we want to produce louder records. So they do. And they hire mastering engineers, and and, and those mastering engineers have gotten very adept with the latest digital tools at making things sound loud all the time. Uh, that's not musically appropriate from my perspective. I, there's a picture in my book um uh music and audio a user guide to better sound um where i took a, a very dynamic lawrence jubert acoustic guitar track and i i then mastered it with varying five four one was no compression at all with varying levels of compression and dynamics limiting which basically basically takes the high components and brings them down by some ratio two four six eight to one yeah. some 20 to one It brings those down. So it gets flatter and flatter and flatter and flatter. flatter. That's step one. Step two, then, is to normalize that file. So those those essentially start sounding quieter. Although there's no dynamics anymore, they're universally mezzo forte. They're right in the middle of the dynamic range because I'm bringing Mm -hmm. down the the peaks, um, the louder sections that cross over a certain threshold. Then uh, there's a technology or a process called normalize. Normalizes. I know that my bucket is is sixteen bits or twenty four bits deep. Yeah. I want to make. I want to find the loudest sample in amongst the Lawrence Juber track. Uh, and I'm going identify that in pass one of this normalizing process, where I find uh, I've got one that's you know twenty six thousand, and all the rest of them are below that. So I know that the peak in that file is 26,000. If I know that I can get to, I'm making up numbers here, 50,000, okay. I'm going to add 30,000 to that and every other sample and raise the, the uh, not the, the fidelity, but I'm going to raise the volume of the entire track. Now remember, I just squashed all of the, the vertical differentiation, all the dynamic range out through compression. Yeah. Then, you, then you normalize it, it goes up and now it looks like a brick. And that's what we get in 90% of the audio that you listen to through the radio, through Sirius XM, through the disc that you buy. Not generally through the LPs, which might be a a, a reason why LPs actually do so well. Are are coming back in popularity. Oh, yeah. yeah. They sell more than they do CDs. Um, But the the reason is because we're producing things at the outset, according to the the mandates of the record labels, that lack fidelity. And there's Hmm. strategic reasons for that because they know that it sells more. My my record is louder than yours, and therefore, you're going to buy it. So for the audio file sensibility, you have to adopt the fact that it's going to be quieter. You're going to have to turn up the volume after you've been listening to a KISS record all afternoon. You're going to have to turn up the volume to listen to Lawrence Juber because there's dynamic range in there. And most of the the, uh, mid-range volume that he plays is quieter than the quietest sections of the KISS record that's really
1: interesting so essentially um for the audiophiles they might not be getting um in the standard day-to-day recordings what the artist actually sounds like so much as what the record labels know sells more exactly true yes Okay, so I'm going to hold on to that thought. I have some more questions, but uh, for right now, we're just going to go take a little break. And when we jump back in, we can kind of kick off from there. is actually after are they looking to get as close to the the musician as possible and how the musician sounds in real life or are they looking to get the kind of most out of their speaker system the the most out of um what their equipment can reproduce and and that's kind of like the the line of questioning that i was going to go down is is by the sounds of it the stuff that you're recording and how you're recording it is to get as close to the actual musician in the room as possible, not necessarily get the most out of their speaker systems. If that makes sense. Well,
0: I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Um, When when you talk about the capabilities of equipment, we we talk about distortion specification. We talk about speed and wow and flutter and, and, uh, and, talk about dynamic range, you know, the, the ability to reproduce um, uh, loud and, and soft both. Um, we talk about the the accuracy of, of the speaker diffusing into the room so that you're, you're on track without having uh, losing frequencies because you're off access on speakers and so forth. All those things are you know, the hardware people work really, really hard to to reproduce the content that the record companies and engineers like myself create. So your system is only going to be the only limits to your system right now is the fidelity that's in the software or the, the music that you play through that system. Hmm. The limiting factor is the disc is the, is the file is the material that's being delivered through those speakers and so on. Um, so look, you can invest a hundred thousand dollars in a set of speakers and they're, they're flat to 40 kilohertz and, and, you know, they have a wide diffusion pattern and they're time aligned and all that other stuff. But if you put a crap record in there, if you Fim put a record in it, it's, it's going to reproduce that crap with 100% fidelity. Um, so it's, it's from, from audiophile to in, in, in my world is I want to make sure that the sit down and listen experience um, brings the, that which music can do, which is, is to, to communicate immu- uh, intellectual and emotional uh, stimulation. Uh, I have a recording of of Jennifer Warren's titled "So Sad." That that unfortunately I can't release it. She won't let me. She has re-recorded it, and her the recorded version that she's put out I think pales in comparison to the one that I have. Um, but it's 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 a guaranteed you know uh, tug at your heartstrings every time you hear it. It's just really a beautiful, very sad uh, song performed by one of the artists' true genius singers of the of the 20th century. Jennifer Warren's, so I, I, it's a fabulous recording. I have the same thing from, you know, other artists or you listen to a Stravinsky Firebird suite, you know, with, it's just incomparable to me, to any other art form. I mean, you, you have this dynamism, you have this emotion. So if I can connect you with that, which means I have to capture it and then you have to be able to deliver it. Yeah. So the question is to have a really great fidelity recording played through crap speakers is that preferable to having a crap recording played through really great speakers? Hmm. I have a friend who lives in the neighborhood and, and, uh, we were not to watch. I watched the, the Lakers lose another basketball game the other <laughs> afternoon. And, um, you know, she's, she's playing my AIX John Gorka, uh, recording, which is sitting here on the desk I finished his yesterday. Um, uh, I saw a stranger with your hair or always or blue chalk that uh, tracks on his record through basically just streaming through a, a, a small desktop speaker setup that's not stereo any, and it sounded really great. The emotion, the, the connection, the dynamic range was present even in this $200 playback device. So in my estimation, it's far more important. In fact, it's singularly the most important component in your entire system is to have a really great recording. Uh, and sadly, most recordings are not great recordings. There are many really, really, really good recordings. But in the audiophile world, you know, we don't have access to the, to the latest, greatest uh, pop records and so forth to produce in the ways that we want. Yeah. They're, they're produced according to the formulas that make Taylor Swift and, and others, you know, uh, millions and millions of dollars. Um, that's unfortunate. It's sad. That's why the audio files sort of set apart from that. But people get so, you know, uh, entranced by cost, by advice from so-called experts that's ill-placed, um, by the, the myth of snake oil uh, cables and, and, you know, $8,000 power connectors to the wall. I mean, all that stuff is a bunch of hocus pocus, and, and I've shown it Um but they continue to, to fund these companies. One of those that, that, that we talked about uh, you know offline was this whole MQA thing. The same yeah. people the same people behind Meridian lossless packing over in, in Great Britain who came up with this really brilliant way of, of losslessly compressing that, that uh, multi-channel audio down. They since licensed that when it came out on the Blu-ray to Dolby. And Dolby calls it Dolby True HD. They've enhanced it, they've added more channels and and, and made a very mature uh, codec. But it's still physically based off of a disc. A Blu-rays, I play a Blu-ray every once in a while, I got a bunch of them in front of me here. But, you know, that's, that's again, as we said, the death of, of discs and physical media uh, warrants, well, what do we do? That's not a format that's gonna be streamed or delivered. So. Uh, very cleverly, uh, I think, to, to make up with some really deficit years of, of, of negative growth, um, in if that's such a term, in the world of Meridian, the, uh, the opportunity, as, as was very clearly pointed out by the head of that company, is in streaming. So let's keep the streaming revenue piece through this thing called MQA. We'll use. So what, what does MQA actually stand for? Master Sorry. Quality Authenticated. Okay and and it it was um it's basically described as a a technology a a technique that you encode um during a mastering session and and you can get all this high frequency stuff and fold it with origami technology down underneath the uh the bandwidth that you do have and then you can expand it back out it's all bs it 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 was a complete snow job and, and sales pitch uh, a lot of people, uh, for reasons I failed to understand, including many in the press, bought into it and then said, oh, my gosh, this is the most revolutionary and beautiful thing I've ever heard. Well, it's not. Um, and and thankfully, you know, the, those of us, I think, who argued against it, including some really smart people that I know um, from Benchmark and others, they've gone into receivership now. So they've, they've mm. basically, the world has recognized that, that with sufficient bandwidth, we can give you the entire file all the way out to 96k, 24-bit streaming without having to compress it into this MQA or any other codec. Um, that's probably the revelation that I've had over the last couple of weeks. Um, the, uh, uh, one of the programmers at, at Sonic Solutions, the digital audio workstation maker back in 1990, whatever it was, 89, when I started uh, editing discs for a CD release, um, using their tools on a, on a Mac, um, he's still around and started SoundBlade uh, to take over the Sonic Solution stuff. And um, he has now come up with—I found this thing through a through a connection on Facebook—and turned out him uh, turned out to be Jonathan Reichbach and a thing called Artist Connection. Now, it is possible today with the bandwidth that most of us have available in the urban areas to get lossless. 96k 24-bit audio. I know I was arguing against that before, but if you can get it, why not? <laughs> um, it doesn't hurt, certainly doesn't hurt anything. Um, we can stream that now into you know into a portable device, into your cell phone, into your receiver, uh, into your Apple set-top box. Uh, you can get high-resolution audio. The choices, however, are being made not to offer that to people because bandwidth is expensive. If it costs me $40 to service you with, with high resolution streaming in your place, and I'm only charging you $15 a month, I'm going in the hole 35 or $25 a month, not a good thing. So the reality is we now have the technology, the bandwidth has caught up to the point where I can deliver my tracks in surround in high resolution with video. It's like YouTube on steroids. So is there going to be a next physical medium that takes over? it's there's no point whether whether we've got 4k or 8k video it's just that's not how uh consumers have have decided they want to experience their media they want it anytime any place they're willing to watch a movie on a on a small screen of their smartphone etc and likewise they're willing to listen through in-ear monitors or headphones or through their sound bars or you know for those of us who are big on multiple speakers and surround, they'll, they'll send that through. But it, 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 again, is a matter of getting that material from a source that says it's not a shelf. I don't have to occupy half of my room with, with LPs or CDs or, or cassettes or anything else, Blu-rays, DVDs. I can get any track in ultimate fidelity with or without, you know, surround with or without video anytime I want. That's, that's, we've reached, we've reached Oz. I mean, we're here. We've, we've got the solution um, because of the technology has finally caught up. It is incumbent, I think, on those artists, those record labels, those producers and engineers to say, we now have this entire fidelity field to play with. Let's make high fidelity recordings, high fidelity recordings available to consumers. Mm. And you can do that by saying, OK, we're going to we're going we're gonna to put metadata in the file that says, please turn on compression because I'm listening to this in the car while I'm out jogging. And, and in, in the, uh, in the circumstance where we're listening at home and it's quiet in our environment late at night and we want real fidelity, we're listening to classical music or jazz or something else that deserves it. Let's turn off that metadata that says squash it dynamically and give you the full fidelity. We can do that today.
1: That's, That's interesting. Day, but
0: the record labels will not, will not. that doesn't make them more money. So plus what they would probably do is say, okay, each one of these is a different skew. We're going to have to pay the royalties twice. So there's yeah, pay to unlock that functionality. That's right. So we've really reached the point where there's no need for physical media anymore, unless you're a collector and really feel good about walking up to the, to the cabinet me getting one of my Blu-ray discs and pulling it off the shelf and saying, I'm going to enjoy the video and, and surround music with me sitting in the middle of the band. We can okay. do that through a stream now. And we didn't used to be able to do that.
1: That's very cool. So Mark, we're coming to the end of our time. The one last question I have is, um, for you, enjoying music, what would be the soundtrack to your life that you would put on or what would be the the songs that you would actually listen to to just sit back, relax, and enjoy a musical experience?
0: Uh, Bach. Johann Sebastian Bach. Uh, maybe it's the Italian concerto. Maybe it's the Art of Fugue. Um, I just find the... Uh, the non-stop intellectual stimulation of listening to uh, a piece of counterpoint as as imagined and realized by by Bach to be uh, the most satisfying to me it's not overly emotional it's you know it's, it's uh, it stimulates the the intellectual side when i started studying music seriously as opposed to being a three chord guitar player even a jazz guitar player in college and high school um to discover even just the first invention of Bach and realize that you know you take Eight notes, and you build a whole 32 bill, 32 measure composition around by turning it upside down, playing it backwards, playing it, you know, half the speed and twice the speed. It's it's called composition, not songwriting, for a reason. So mm-hmm. musically, for me, that you know, uh, I certainly enjoy the 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 you know the reggae of Ernest Wrangler, or the the songs uh, of John Gorka, but they're you know, they're in a different category in terms of their artistic merit to me. Um, they hit their their bullet points right on. But for me, it's so it, well, since I discovered uh, Bach and, and played some, I'm still working on the first imagine even here now trying to get back, get it back under my fingers. But that's that's music that just as is, is close to perfection as, as I've ever imagined. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so in wrapping up, uh, if people are
1: looking to uh, learn more about your work, learn more about your views, um, kind of listen to some of your recordings. Where can they find out more? Where can they learn more?
0: Well, the the, the commercial goes something like this. I started in 2013 a blog at real, R-E-A-L-H-D hyphen audio.com. I wrote uh, well over a thousand blog posts pretty much every day for a number of years, built up a pretty good following. Uh, I had some struggles medically and personally over the last couple of years, so I hadn't really written and participated, but I'm, I'm kind of back on that. Um, the uh the catalog of of recordings in physical format if you want really stick to discs and i have some the the racks behind me still have some of these discs that i can send out um that's at aixrecords.com that's my record label the download site is itrax.com where you can just simply uh buy the the tracks and have them downloaded to your um to your device, whatever, they're yours and keep a record of it. So if you lose that hard drive, you can always get more. Um, The book, the music and audio, uh, uh, a user guide to better sound was a Kickstarter campaign from 2017. 900 page book which still is very relevant advice on how to pick equipment how to buy what's important about music that that, that we should support with the fidelity uh, of both the production stuff and, and what we do with distribution and listening it was a very successful book comes with a blu-ray disc if you want the blu-ray disc or a set of files that shows you what high resolution music is what the difference is between a master and a non-mastered track or one that's done in this various mixing uh, audience perspective or stereo uh, versus stage perspective file one. I'm um, working on a new book. It's called The User Guide to Streaming. Downloads and personal audio. That should be out uh, hopefully this summer, which was the second book that uh, uh, that I am coining. And, and the new thing right now, which, you know, to, to be the next YouTube tycoon, uh, I mean, it takes a lot of hits to make a couple of bucks. I think I'm over $5 in profit now after working like a dog for two weeks, uploading my catalog. But the YouTube channel is AIX Records. And i will be putting up their uh, little vignettes on music theory um what's important about you know scales and rhythm and how to listen critically to to music what's important in terms of recording technologies and so forth as i begin to build out this channel but um i'm putting up you know it takes me several days to get an album up but i'm putting those those records up in stereo from i've got john dorka and, and uh dave mason uh, rita coolidge is going up right now ernest wranglin Uh, Albert Lee, very prominent uh, country-picking guitar players up there already. So I'm going to make my stuff available. Look, I'm I'm retiring from the university. I I don't do this because I have to worry about the income generated by my catalog. I would like to make it available, let people become aware of the fact that that Fidelity does still exist and that that you can find it and you can get it online. This latest wrinkle I haven't really explored too heavily yet, but Artist Connection, this uh, thing I mentioned that Jonathan Reichbach is doing. Um, where we will be able to stream high resolution uh, in multi-channel with video um, is is upcoming. And we're still trying to figure out exactly how those value propositions going to work. Would people pay $100 a month to stream, you know, 4K lossless surround sound? Maybe, maybe not. We'll find out. Very cool.
1: Awesome. It's been an absolute pleasure, Mark. Um, thank you so much. And looking forward to chatting with you in the future sometime. Thanks very much, Jordan. I appreciate the opportunity. All the best, everyone. Take care.